Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. College football was entering into a new era in the season of 1931. There were some rule changes on blocking and some in communication to both opponents and officials. We have that, and we have who was the best team in 1931 college football. We have these answers and more coming up in just a moment. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pigpen, your portal to positive football history. And welcome to another edition of the Football History Rewind as we go through football, college, and professional levels year by year, all the way from history uh, through the modern day. Uh, We are in the 1931 season, and it's a dawning of a new era in in college football and professional football, but we're going to be talking about the college game in this edition uh, of part number 68 of the Football History Rewind, and uh, you know the new era of the modernization era, the transitional period from the days of the leather helmets and the roaring 20s into today's uh, more modern equipment and just that whole transgression and transition uh, to get into that uh, period. So we'll talk about that in just a moment. But before we do, let's make sure you are aware of our daily newsletter. We have one that comes out each and every day, 6.30 a.m. Straight into your email inbox. You can cancel at any time and it's totally free. Everything is going on in a pig pen. Uh, Pigskin Dispatch, Jersey Dispatch, Orville Mulligan, Sports Writer, and many items from the Sports History Network as well. We'll also send you some uh, little gems in that newsletter. Uh, maybe a photo of the day, uh, some news uh, that's coming out, and maybe some other articles that I've written around the web on some other sites as well. We'll try to share all that with you in uh, one nice, neat package. So sign up very easily at the uh, show notes of this very podcast or the top of pigskindispatch.com or jerseydispatch.com. Now let's get into the 1931 college football season. It was somewhat of a, a somber time in collegiate football. As we learned in the last few editions of the series, the memorials to the late, great Newt Rockney were reflected in the rule books themselves. Uh, the discussion in this edition will go slightly differently as we have access to Spalding's official football rules book. That's football with two, two separate words. Uh, of the National Collegiate Athletic Association for the year 1931. And permission uses contents from the NCA, and we definitely thank them for that. Uh, This article will be a a great snapshot of the odd blocking rules of the time and some insight on how trash talk was dealt with then. And we're also going to talk about some of the great teams uh, from the collegiate era of 1931. 
First, let's get into some of the rules and the illegal blocks in 1931. And it's a fascinating look back at history just to see how far our game has evolved. And as a credit to the hard work and the foresight that many of our fathers of football had to make the gridiron game what it is today. And we have a great uh, snapshot from that Spalding Rules book of a figure number 17 uh, demonstrating what illegal use of the hands and arms of a player of the team in possession of the ball was. And now, it, uh, it shows the illegal use of the hands in that era, and we of today's era must remember that this was not too long ago when the extended arm technique of blocking became legal in football. Our research shows that the National Federation of High School Sports adopted the current rule of offensive blockers being able to extend their arms to a maximum of 45 degrees away from their bodies uh, rather than arms having to contact their person back in 1977. So a little over 50 years or almost 50 years ago, a little less than 50 years ago, that's that rule's not that old. So prior to that, the teams of an offense, their blockers, had to have their hands into their body and uh, block like that, almost like you see the old little plastic uh, football figures that uh, you used to play with. Uh, the, the blockers would have their hands up, their elbows out, and that's how you blocked. You just sort of gotten away of your opponent. Now we, we know you can, uh, offensive guys can put their hands on them, not closed hands, not grasping anything, uh, although they many times do, and that is technically holding. But just to use the palms of your hands to ward off opponents uh, uh, and, and defenders trying to get at your, your people. Now, the caption under the illustration 17 that we have from 1931 refers the reader to rule number 10, section 1, article 2. And that rule from 1931 reads like this. It says, quote, The runner may ward off opponents with his hands and arms, but no other player possessing the ball may use his hands or arms unless the arms are close to the body to obstruct an opponent. Now, players of the 21st century should appreciate what blockers uh, prior to 1977 had to do. Their job was made much easier with the extended arm rules that ward off defenders. Of course, they suffered a big blow in 1981 uh, NFHS rules when the blocks below the waist from the front cross body blocks became illegal, except in the free blocking zone. And now we alluded to it earlier, but this illegal block is alien to us. It should come as no surprise that illustration 17 is an illegal block in our era too. At the high school level, uh, rule uh, NFHS rule 2-3-2A3, the forearms cannot be extended more than 45 degrees away from the blocker's body. So figure 17 has the, uh, those that can't see the picture, his arms are totally outstretched, the elbows are locked on a straight arm, that the arms are straight out in front of you, almost like you're gonna push uh, the wall, but he's pushing an opponent. Well, those elbows have to be at 45 degrees and, uh, you know, not a straight arm sticking out there. Now, illustration 24 may be deemed legal in the common era of football. The viewer could judge that the blocker uh, number two's arms are less than 45 degrees from his body during contact. It's hard to tell. It was, however, a violation in 1931's rules uh, as uh, to a legal block. And I mentioned it earlier in the excerpt of the ruling, blocker ruling, that blocker number two's arms were not close to his bodies. Thus, he was illegal back in 1931. We would probably count that as a legal block today, and you probably see it on almost every uh, offensive play. Now, there were some other rules that changes in 1931. Uh, today's rules de deal sternly and quite specifically with what is acceptable 
and regarding communication between opponents. Words like taunting, baiting, and profanity make it clear that ill-fated rhetoric aimed at officials and opponents will not be tolerated. But what was it like back in the 1931 season? Well, we took this excerpt from the Football Code of 1931 and the smooth, common-sense style in which it was written. Now, here's an excerpt from that. And they say, quote, in talking to your opponents, if it falls short of being abusive or insulting, is not prohibited by rules, partly because it ought not be necessary and partly because no rules can make gentlemen out of the mucker. Yes, that's right. They said mucker with an M. Uh, No good sportsman is ever guilty of cheap talk to his opponents. The rules were very personal back then and aimed to talk right to the players just as an official or coach would speak to them about the rule. Now they also had some verbiage on talking to officials and the 1931's uh, rules deals with how players should deal with officials. Now it says, quote, when an official imposes or makes a decision, he simply does his duty as he sees it. He is on the field representing the integrity of the game of football. And in his decision, even though he may have made a mistake in judgment, is final and conclusive and should be accepted. Even though you may think the decision is mistaken, take your medicine and do not whine about it. Let your captain do the talking if anything is need to be said. That is his business. Yours is to keep quiet and to play the game, unquote. Commentary from 2008 on this coded message to the players. That is very much well said. Uh, 2023, yes, yeah, still well said. Uh, you know, mind your business. The official makes a thing. That's the coach, the captain's job to, to argue and to uh, plead your case uh, of getting a, maybe an overturned or instant replay in our day and age. Now, let's take a look at the 1931 college football season with these rules imposed. They really didn't have much effect on it. There was no big stories of the blocking being a major problem or uh, the new uh, communication efforts. Uh, nothing going on there. But there was some good football being played. The 1931 college football season can be defined by one game in particular, the annual Southern Cal versus Notre Dame contest. USC took their 6-1 record to South Bend to face the 6-0-1 Fighting Irish squad. This is middle of the season, late in the season now. Notre Dame had not lost in 26 games, but most of these were under the now-deceased Coach Rockney. Hunk Anderson, who is now in charge of the Irish Critters, held a 14-0 lead in the fourth quarter against Southern Cal. And you remember Hunk Anderson. He was a, a former guard that played for Newt Rockney in Notre Dame, and he had quite a professional career as well. This standout was inducted in the College Football Hall of Fame, and he allegedly uh, played under a fake name for the Canton Bulldogs in the pro level in the 1920-21 seasons. But Anderson would later argue that uh, he played in one exhibition game, maybe two, not anything mean- meaningful. But we may ne- never know the truth. But however, it is confirmed that Anderson played 39 NFL regular season games while starting 32 of them from 1922 to 1926 as a member of the Cleveland Indians franchise and the Chicago Bears NFL franchise. He was not good. He was a good enough pro that the Hall of Fame retroactively selected Hunk to the 1920s All-Decade team as an interior lineman. And uh, besides coaching the Fighting Irish, uh, he 
stepped in after leaving uh, St. Louis uh, University, where he coached 1928-1929. Then he went to his alma mater, Notre Dame, coach for three years. And then went to North Carolina State in 1934 through 36 and compiled a career in college football. was 34-34-4 and between the three schools. And from 1942 to 1945, he was hired by George Hallis to become the head coach of the Chicago Bears, even leading the franchise to win the 1943 National Football League title. So Hunky Anderson definitely had a great resume to take over the Fighting Irish. And like we said, his team was winning 14-0 going into the fourth quarter against Southern County's very uh, essential game to claim the national championship. The Trojans were not giving up, though. South Southern Cal rallied in the final stanza, kicking a 33-yard field goal with a minute left for a comeback win, 16-14, and a victory. The Trojans won out their remaining games, defeating Washington 44-7, a very tough Georgia team, 60-0 in a blowout, and one loss to Lane. Uh, they beat them 21-12 in the Rose Bowl game. Now, most experts in later years have dubbed the USC Trojans as the nation's top team for 1931 with these facts. But there were other teams to consider, too. We mentioned earlier the Tulane Green Wave. They lost to USC in the Rose Bowl. They finished with an 11-1 record and only lost to USC. Well, since they played head-to-head with the Trojans and lost, they, too, just like Notre Dame, have no claim to the crown. Uh, USC overtakes them there. That brings up the 8-1 Pitt Panthers. Coach Jock Sutherland's 11 did suffer one loss, and it was at the hands of Notre Dame. So they too must sort of go under that principle of USC beat Notre Dame, Notre Dame beat Pitt, USC's a better team, USC gets the top billing in that. But possibly the most interesting case could be the 9-0-1 Tennessee Volunteers team. Coach uh, Robert Neeland led his charges to beat Alabama and Georgia, However, the Kentucky Wildcats rained on their parade in late November with a 6-6 tie on a muddy field in Lexington. Could this stellar record take them above the one-loss Trojans? Well, though possible, it is not probable as Southern Cal's strength of schedule was a little bit higher caliber of competition than that of the Vols in 1931, even though they were a very good team. So I think uh, the consensus is from most uh, everybody that's looked back at that is USC was the best team in college football 1931. And that takes us uh, to the end of this part number 68 in our look at the college game in 1931. Our next Football History Rewind, which will be next week, we will talk about the 1931 professional circuit of football. And uh, But we have plenty of stories uh, to go around before then. Uh, so make sure you check out... Uh, Tomorrow, we will be having Timothy P. Brown of Football Archaeology on to talk about another interesting subject, And we, as we do every Tuesday. And we have a lot of great things happening uh, on the Sports Jersey Dispatch podcast this week. We're going to be talking about some interesting items, uh, getting ready for the baseball season, maybe a little basketball, and a little bit of uh, some of the other sports as well. So we thank you for joining us today. We hope you'll join us once again next time on this Sports Jersey Dispatch podcast and on the Pigskin Dispatch podcast until next time everybody have a great gridiron day we're taking a peek over at the chains and the down marker it's fourth and long we're gonna have to punt the ball and get on out of here but we'll have another series tomorrow for your football history headlines so be sure to tune in
we invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. Pigskindispatch.com is a proud affiliate of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of sports yesteryear. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. I just need a few moments of your time to talk about the host of the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, Darren Hayes. He's expanded the pig pen to search out information on the history of all team sports. It's a quest to find out about the competitors, teams, and places chronicled throughout athletic history through the uniforms and gear the participants used and wore. And he is taking you, the listener, with him on this educational journey to preserve sports history on the Sports Jersey Dispatch, found here on the Sports History Network. His newest podcast, called Jersey Dispatch, is all based on the jerseys that all the greats used to wear. You can find Darren Hayes and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast as well as Jersey Dispatch on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that, Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcasts. It's found right here on the Sports History Network.